I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind. And I'm a bit on the clock today. I usually start recording when I have plenty of time. It wouldn't matter when I need to finish. But today I started a little late and I need to get my boys up from their naps in about 45 minutes. So that's my hard stop. I have to be done in 45 minutes. And that's only an issue because I have like four solid pages of notes for this episode. So I don't know if we might go a little bit longer than normal. Normal has been about 35 minutes for this season. Um, But who knows, maybe this will be a long one. But before I forget, I have a bit of an announcement, and that is that we need topics for a Q&A episode. In about a month or so, we're going to do a Q&A episode, and that's just anything that you want to ask me. If there's something that you want to know how I research or where I get my information, even though that stuff is usually in the show notes, at least some of my resources, I don't always list all of them, just the main ones. Or if there's some topic that you want to hear more about that I've mentioned, or maybe I just didn't talk enough for your satisfaction, you want to know more, ask questions. Um, I already had one friend send me one question, and it's a really good one. It's a really basic one. But I was like, oh, yeah, we should probably talk about why we use that terminology for that thing. I'm not going to give away what it is, but don't be afraid to go super basic or super obscure, whatever you want to do. It's fine, whatever it is, because the basic stuff usually ends up being the more important stuff because we take it for granted and then we just say stuff, but we don't necessarily know what we're saying sometimes. So yeah, if you have any questions about stuff that we've talked about in this season or even last season or something totally unrelated, I'll pick through and we'll find some stuff that we can do for that episode, okay? So that'll be in at least another month or so. So you got plenty of time, but if you think of something, email me, or if you have my personal phone number, text me, but my email is always in the show notes with allyourmindpodcast at gmail.com. So make use of it. Okay, so what are we doing today? Today, we're going to talk about the spectrum of Bible translations. And maybe you're familiar with that term, maybe not. Um, But with all this talk about Bible translating and how that's done and who has done it and how that has changed over time, I thought, yeah, it's about time that we talk about all the different English Bible translations that we have. And how are they different? What are the different translation philosophies And how do you choose a Bible? And what do you base that on? And how are they different from each other? I think that's a really important question. How are these Bibles different from each other? Because it really matters for how you read your Bible. So we're going to get into all of that. And I've had people ask me before what translation of Bible I read. And they've talked about what translation they read. And usually it's somebody famous or an article they've read, or something that their pastor has said that influences the way people want to change reading their Bible. 
uh, typically it seems like people read the Bible that they're familiar with from when they grew up, whether that was NIV or King James or some other translation. It's often just what you're familiar with growing up. So there are people that are King James only. <laughs> In fact, one of my favorite churches to visit uses the King James um, from the pulpit, from teaching. And I don't prefer the King James, but I can be okay with someone else using it. But on the other hand, I know some people would purposely avoid a church that used a King James Bible. So I'm curious, and if you want to do this, send in some information for me and we'll talk about it in a later episode. But I'm curious, what do you use and why? What translation of the Bible do you use? Is it because that's what you used growing up? Or is it because you understand it the best of all the translations you've read? Or because you believe it's the best translation? Do you believe there is a best translation? That's an interesting question. And do you think there are bad or wrong translations? I'm not going to get into all the answers for all of these questions because some of them just don't even have an answer. Um, But you might want to think about your answers for those questions because you might not have even realized that you have certain beliefs or tendencies or ways of thinking about Bibles. That would just be interesting to think about. All right, so let's talk about the differences in these translations and the different philosophies in Bible translation and how they go about choosing wording, okay? So we mentioned already this phrase, the spectrum of English Bible translations. And you don't talk about this with other languages because there isn't 15 different translations in, say, the Russian Bible or even the Hebrew Bible or in the Spanish Bible. They typically will have one, maybe two or three different translations, usually one that's really, really old and one that has been improved in the last, say, 30, 40 years. So the Russian Bible that I have, I know it is a much older version. It's kind of like the King James of the Russian Bible. And so I'm hoping, I don't know, I'm hoping that they have a better translation now that is better for modern Russian. Okay, so the spectrum of English Bible translations. You can find graphs of them online, and I'll link some in the show notes so that you can check them out, because it's really helpful to see this visually. There are lots of ways to define the spectrum. So what I've been using for myself to talk about this is talking about a 12-inch ruler, just a normal ruler that you would have used in school. And so it's marked at 1 inch, 2 inch, all the way up to 12 inches, right? And at the one-inch end, you'd have what are called word-for-word translations, otherwise known as formal equivalents. They're what you think of as more formal translations, maybe older sounding or more academic. Harder to read is at the one-inch end of this ruler. Then at the 12-inch end, you have thought-for-thought translations, or otherwise known as dynamic equivalents. And we'll talk about those terms a little bit. But these are versions that are very much like everyday speech. They're trying to make it much easier to read, but sometimes at the, at the expense of accuracy. Okay. So word for word and formal equivalence is at the one inch end. And then dynamic equivalence or thought for thought is over at the 12 inch end. And so a spectrum is something that changes gradually right? So in the middle at six inches, 
is pretty much the NIV Bible. At the middle, it's like we're still trying to get a pretty good accuracy, but we want to make it easy to read too. So the way these philosophies work is that the word-for-word translations try to stick to Hebrew and Greek word order. So that means that if in Hebrew or Greek, the object or the verb came first in a sentence, they're going to stick that first in English too. So it makes it a little bit more formal sounding because that's how early modern English or middle English used to do things. But now in modern English, we talk subject, verb, object, right? The dog ran over the cat or whatever you want to do. But in earlier English, it was more similar to Hebrew and Greek that you would have that a little bit more out of order. Ran over the cat, the dog did, something like that. So in the word-for-word or formal equivalents, they're going to try and stick to that Hebrew or Greek word order. And so they translate one word at a time so that you're held fairly strictly to the wording of the Greek and Hebrew, whether that's understandable to modern readers or not. So you're getting a very clear picture of what it said in Hebrew and Greek, but it might not help you so much to understand it in English. The strength of that is that if you know the original languages and cultures well and don't want anyone kind of interpreting the text for you, then that's what you want. The weakness, obviously, is that you need a lot of extra help to understand these versions if you're not familiar with Hebrew and Greek, and the meanings just won't be as clear. Okay, so that's the one-inch end of the ruler. At the other end, the 12-inch end, we have thought-for-thought or dynamic equivalence. And you can think of this as word-for-word versus paragraph-by-paragraph. And the goal is to try to use the language that's common for everyday speech, the what we speak today. And instead of taking word-for-word and translating one word at a time, instead it's kind of like taking a paragraph and summarizing it a little bit. So using common speech today, not in Jesus' time, Not in 1611, which is when the King James was written, but whenever today is for the translation committee. The strength of this is that it's much more understandable, and you don't need so many study helps or to understand the more difficult Bible terminology that we just don't use today because we're avoiding those really specific Bible vocabulary that we don't use today. However, the weakness is that these options are much more interpreted. That means that the translators had to interpret the text. They had to figure out what it was trying to say and then put it in different words. That means if there were three meanings in that paragraph, to make it more understandable, they might not be able to deliver on all three of those meanings. They might be only able to deliver on two of those meanings. So a really complicated text usually has lots of meaning. And then a simpler text has less meaning. That's just the way it works, right? So a simpler text, a simpler translation of the Bible, going thought for thought or dynamic equivalence, is going to get less meaning, but the meaning that you do have will be much more understandable. So they can obviously lose out on accuracy. Another downside is that if you go too far with trying to make it everyday speech, and go really informal and use slang, 
that translation is going to date itself pretty fast. You're going to know exactly when it was written, right? Um, I'll always remember, um, this was maybe 15, 13 years ago. I was working as a tutor at a community college and I had a lot of downtime and there were a handful of books in this tutoring room. And one of them was the Odyssey by Homer and it was written or, you know, the translation was done in the 1930s and you could tell <laughs> like it didn't include really obvious slang like the bee's knees but it might as well have because it sounded like um f scott fitzgerald and the great gatsby and things like that it was like wow am i reading something from ancient greece or is this new york city in 1930 it was it was really weird so you don't want to go too far with slang and informal language because then you're like wait what generation are we writing this in and it helps a little bit to keep out too much of everyday speech so that we don't get disoriented with what we're reading okay so let's get to some examples of these things because it's still hard to imagine right we have a 12 inch ruler on the one inch end is really formal word for word trying to avoid making it sound too much like English, trying to make you think of the Hebrew and Greek and very accurate, but harder to read. On the 12 inch end is the dynamic equivalence, thought for thought or paragraph for paragraph a bit. And it's trying to make it everyday speech, um, but you'd end up losing out on meaning a little bit. Okay, so the Bible on the far left of the ruler, and we're just going to talk about some of these Bibles. The Bible on the far, far left, on that one inch end, you would think, what do you, what do you imagine that Bible is going to be? It's not the King James Bible. And you might think of that because that might be the most formal Bible that you know of. Well, it's only formal because it's in older language. The, actually, the most formal Bible that we have is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. And apparently scholars like to use this Bible because it's the most literal, the most word for word of any Bible out there. So we're going to look at a few verses and we'll compare with different translations. Okay, so here's a few verses in the NASB, the most formal, the most word for word. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. Not too bad, fairly understandable, but I'd have to think about it for a while to make sure I understood it. Next one, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. <laughs> Pretty basic. And then Genesis 1, 1. Everybody knows this, but you might not think too much about the language, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. All right, so that one's probably pretty familiar, but maybe not so understandable. Like, what is the surface of the deep? And the earth was formless and void. What does that mean specifically? So other translations that are at this end of the spectrum are the King James Bible, the ESV Bible, and the New King James Bible. They're all around the 12, 11, 10 inch end of the ruler. Okay. So let's go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum to super dynamic, thought for thought. Now, here's the problem. <laughs> 
at this end, things get fuzzy because at what point is it not a Bible anymore? At what point is it a paraphrase? Or when you just really go out there, it's a children's Bible. They're not trying to give you every story. They're not trying to give you what the Bible is specifically saying. They're trying to give you general ideas and general stories. Children's Bibles are actually not Bibles. They're more like Bible story books. So if you call it a children's Bible, you might want to start thinking of it as a Bible story book or something like that. They're not actually Bibles. They contain Bible stories, but they're not trying to translate the whole Bible. And then there's things like the Passion Translation, which I don't know too much about. I kind of missed the boat on this whole story of the Passion Translation, but it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase, not a Bible. Another one that is not a Bible is the message. Most people agree that this is a paraphrase, but it's better than the Passion Translation. So we're going to not even talk about that stuff. And we're going to go for something that's a Bible, less questionable than the message in the Passion Translations, but still completely on the end of the ruler, all the way on to 12. Okay. And one of those is the Living Bible or the Contemporary English Version or the NLT, the New Living Translation. I'm going to admit, I'm pretty ignorant of these translations. I know a couple people that use them, but I have never read out of them regularly. So I'm not, I'm, I'm just not as familiar at this end of the spectrum. I realized by looking at this stuff that all the Bibles that I like to use are between two and six inches on that ruler. So after six inches, I start to just get, yeah, I just feel like a little sketchy about those Bibles and I don't prefer them. And we'll talk about why later. So don't throw them out just yet. But let's look at those same verses in the NLT, the New Living Translation, okay? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we can't see. I feel like that's way more understandable than the NASB. I feel like I know exactly what it's saying. I don't feel like I need anybody to explain it to me. I actually like that verse in that translation. Next one, John eleven thirty five. Instead of Jesus wept, it says, Jesus started crying. Doesn't that give it a whole different vibe? When I hear wept or weeping, I think of gentle rain. Not ugly crying at all, right? It's very uh, socially acceptable crying is weeping. <laughs> um, but crying, started crying, sounds more childish or immature. Started crying. I imagine Jesus doing ugly sobs, right? I don't imagine him crying silently and just looking kind of sad. With Jesus started crying, I imagine him starting to break, I imagine him being really kind of almost depressed and broken and very upset right at this point. Now, which one is right? Wept with that connotation of being gentle and more quiet or started crying and it sounds more maybe immature just because we talk about children crying. We don't talk about children weeping so much. Which one is right? I don't know. But words have connotations, so it adds to our imagination when we use this different vocabulary, okay? Now, here's the really interesting one. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
so far so good. Completely the same as in NASB. This is where it changes. The earth was barren with no form of life. It was under a roaring ocean covered with darkness, but the spirit of God was moving over the water. Okay. So in the NASB, it said the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then in the NLT, it says the earth was barren with no form of life. It was under a roaring ocean covered with darkness. Isn't that interesting? When I read that Genesis 1 passage in the Living Bible in the NLT, I felt like I was reading a poetic interpretation of the Bible. And I kind of liked it. I was like, it was under a roaring ocean covered with darkness? That sounds really cool. Like, I just, I just like it. It sounds so dramatic and interesting. Like, I'm now seeing colors, like really dark blue with a lot of foamy white on it. I'm kind of thinking of Van Gogh's Starry Night when I think of that. But then I started questioning its accuracy because it seemed to interpret the ideas in a particular way when I wasn't really sure that's what it meant. A roaring ocean covered with darkness. Is that the same as the NIV's darkness was over the surface of the deep? And the NASB is saying pretty much the same thing. Pretty much... It just gives some more specific language to it, like using the word ocean, okay? So think about the word ocean. We know it as a huge body of water that's not really contained except by the earth. And that pretty much works for what we're talking about. But then I, am, I tried to imagine it, and I immediately imagined looking out over the ocean from a cliff, and I, kinda, I can kind of see the water crashing on some rocks, out of the corner of my eye. That's what I imagine. I imagine some seagulls and some rocky cliffs over to the side and big waves crashing on them. So yeah, a more thought for thought translation tries to help our imagination and understanding. But one of the problems with that is that we usually imagine things that we have already seen. And that can really limit our understanding of a biblical passage by helping us to imagine too much. It brings us back to a scene in a movie or a scene that you've seen in real life. But is that what the Bible is saying? Were there seagulls? Were there waves crashing on cliffs? Absolutely not. There was no life yet. But now that's what I'm imagining out of this scene. Okay, so here's another thing. A good chunk of the translations say that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. I looked at 15 different translations for this particular verse. And nine of them had the phrase, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And one of them had fluttering. (laughs) I was glad whenever I saw hovering and I smiled when I saw fluttering because I had learned something about that passage. That word for moved or hovered or fluttered in Hebrew is also used in Deuteronomy 32 to talk about an eagle fluttering or hovering over its nest that had young chicks inside of it. And guess what? God often talks about himself with this analogy of a mother bird protecting her young. Uh, There's a couple of different pictures all through the Bible about this. And Jesus even does it in Matthew 23 when he says, and I'm going to quote this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. So there's this theme of God picturing himself or talking about himself with the analogy of a mother bird protecting her young, a protective mother bird. And we miss it partly because of translation. And here's another place. Uh, If this gets too deep for you, it's a little bit complicated. Don't worry about it. Just think about the Deuteronomy 32, an eagle hovering over its nest, but in Passover. Passover is an event that is commemorated every year in Jewish households, even today. It is to remember how God delivered Israel from Egypt and specifically kept them safe when every unprotected household in Egypt had a firstborn son killed, even the animals, if you remember this. This is when Moses is about to take the people out. It's after the 10 plagues. This is the 10th plague, right? So this is the verse where that is in it's um, Exodus 12. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Okay, so there's lots of talk about who's the destroyer, blah, blah, blah. But we never really talk about that word Passover, because the word for Passover is Pesach or Pesach. And the verb, as in the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come in, that word is Pesach. And in Isaiah 31.5, it talks about God being like a bird hovering over Jerusalem and that he would pass over Jerusalem and rescue it. That word pass over, same word in a different analogy where God is talking about himself being like a bird hovering over Jerusalem. He says he will pasach over Jerusalem and rescue it. And he says in Exodus, he will pasach over a house in Egypt and protect it. And so it all ties together. Jesus talking about being a mother hen, gathering his chicks together, and God talking about himself as an eagle hovering over his nest. And in Exodus, passing over or hovering over a house to protect it from the destroyer. These are all connected passages. And then you go back to Genesis 1, and it's not God hovering or moving over the face of the waters. It's God fluttering like a mother bird over this place that's going to produce life. So are we really supposed to get that in each of these passages? Are we supposed to think of God as a mother bird hovering over the Israelites in Egypt, protecting them with her wings? We wouldn't know that unless we knew that the same verb was used in the Passover story and in the Isaiah 31 picture. But which English translations do a good job of showing that connection? Honestly, I think the NIV does it really well with some of the best. And then some of the versions that I really like, like the ESV, might do it the worst. And that's on a two or three on that ruler. The NIV is about a six on the ruler, and it does a great job with that. The ESV, which is a two or three on the ruler, does not do a good job of that. So here's the thing. None of the English Bible translations can really show you the full picture of all of that. That's a depth of language thing that only the original language can really show you. 
And the same thing goes for poetry. Translated poetry always loses something in the process. I've always loved the way that in Genesis 1, the words for formless and void, or without shape and empty, they rhyme in Hebrew. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without shape and empty. In Hebrew, it says, the earth was tohu v'bohu. So when you hear it in Hebrew, you know there's some poetry-like stuff going on. It's, it's not poetry. It's, it's narrative. It's prose but it has poetic elements mixed in there, okay? So you're always going to lose something in the translation, always. Um, so we're just shooting for best case scenario, basically. Um, so whenever you think, oh no, I need to have a very literal word-for-word -word translation, well, that's going to lose some things too. So don't worry about trying to make it absolutely one thing or the other. It's not that simple, really. Okay, so let's move on. We now know there's a spectrum of Bible translations, and there's different philosophies on how to do translation. And the King James Bible is not the most word-for-word, -word, not the most formal. It's probably just the most famous older translation, and old is often equated with formal, right? And we also know that no one Bible can fully capture all of the nuances and tidbits and connotations and poetry and rhythm and just all of it of the original Bible of what it is in Hebrew and Greek. So a question I wanted answered was, why did each major translation get popular? And are there certain denominations that tend to use certain translations? Okay, so I looked that up and I found some interesting stuff. And here's what I found. The most popular Bibles to buy, the top five most popular Bibles to buy in 2021 were number one, and we'll talk about them each a little bit. Number one, the NIV. Number two, the NLT or New Living Translation. Number three, the ESV or English Standard Version. Number four, the King James Bible, still up there. And the last one, number five, CSB or Christian Standard Bible. Okay, so I'm going to give you some facts about each of these. I'm going to go through again though and tell you where these are on the ruler. Number one, NIV, right about a six on that ruler. The NLT, pretty much a 12 on the ruler. The ESV is about a two or a three on the ruler. The King James Bible is about a three. And the CSB is about a five on that ruler. So let's see, one, two, three, four out of five of the top five Bibles bought in 2021 were on the one to six inch end of the ruler. Only one was on the other side and that's the NLT. Okay, so some more facts. The NIV, it is written for a seventh or eighth grade reading level. That means it's very readable that a seventh or eighth grader could read it without many problems, and it's used by many different denominations. This is and has been the most popular Bible in America for a long time, for probably the last 30, 40 years, okay? The NLT, or New Living Translation, it's written about a sixth grade reading level. So it's the easiest reading level of any Bible in the top 10, except for one other Bible. Pretty easy to read. 
Though, fun fact, <laughs> the NLT was not translated straight from the original languages. It's a bit of a paraphrase from another Bible. So some people do not consider it a real Bible because it was not translated directly from the original languages. Okay. Next one, number three, is the ESV, the English Standard Version. This is a 10th grade reading level Bible. It's a little bit harder, but it has become very popular in the last 15 or so years, partly because John Piper endorsed it. The King James Bible, number four, yep, it's on there. Very popular Bible still. <laughs> it was pu first published 500 years ago, still going strong. It is a 12th grade reading level, pretty hard, but people still love it because of nostalgia or because they believe it is the most accurate English Bible. There is something called the King James Only Movement, maybe you've heard of this, that says the King James Bible is the best and all other versions after it are corrupt. Some groups also believe that the King James Bible is divinely inspired in the same way that the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts were, and in the same way that some early churches believe the Septuagint to be. So if you thought it was weird that some people consider the Septuagint, that was the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you thought it was weird that people thought that was divinely inspired, then you'll definitely think it's weird that people think that the King James was divinely inspired in the exact same way. But apparently we've been doing this for a very long time. All right, last one, CSB, Christian Standard Bible. I honestly know nothing about this one, except that it has a seventh grade reading level. So it's a much more readable one. All right, so last part that we're going to talk about here, and that is what version should you read? My first piece of advice is read the preface or introduction to whatever Bible you already have. I did this this past summer for, I think it was the second time I actually read it, but I actually learned a lot about their philosophy of things and what manuscripts they included when they were taking things into consideration. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But I learned a lot. And for the past six months, I've been reading out of three different Bibles. I trade back and forth and I compare. Sometimes I'll just read one chapter out of one and then move on to the next chapter out of another. And sometimes I'll reread a section in different Bibles just to get a sense of how differently they translated it. But guess what? <laughs> I don't have like some astounding revelation about which one to read because I like all of them for different reasons. It turns out I learned what kind of formatting and notes I like, which was interesting. I like the ones that have notes and lots of information at the beginning of a book, but I don't like the ones that the text is all crammed together on every page. I found that when I have a Bible in front of me that has a lot of text on one page, like crammed together, like older Bibles, like King James and New King James, I tend to read faster to get through it faster, and I don't pay attention as much. So apparently I don't do well with those ones. I do like the ones that have geographical and cultural information. I don't like the ones that I feel like translate or interpret too much for me. And I'm not sure what the original languages might be saying. So which translations am I going to keep reading? <laughs> all three of them. <laughs> they have, they all have strengths and weaknesses and I want to know about all of their strengths 
and I'm willing to deal with the weaknesses to get the strengths. So here are my specifics. My new King James Bible is skinny. (laughs) It fits into my bag really well. And it's the version my church uses, so it's easy to follow along. I feel like if I were to use a different version at church, I would mostly just be struggling to try and make sure I was in the right spot. I like the translation of my ESV Bible because I can guess at what the original languages say, and it has study notes, and I really like them, especially at the beginning of a book. And I like my NIV Bible because it makes me feel more a part of the text and the story. I can imagine it better. And so I can kind of picture what's going on and it helps me to make the Bible more real instead of just this old book. So I've heard it said repeatedly that you should use whatever translation you're actually going to read. Don't buy a translation just because you've heard it's a good translation or because it'll make you more spiritual or it's a more spiritual version. Yes, some translations are definitely better than others. I would say try to avoid the NLT and the message since they'll probably translate the text too much. If there's three meanings in a passage, they'll get down to only two or even maybe just one instead of all three. But you know what? If it's, if it's that or nothing, go ahead. You know, I'd rather people read the Bible in whatever translation than not at all, but you're going to run into problems if that's all you read. And I'm not about to run out and buy the NASB because that's what scholars read, and so I should too. No. And I'm not going to look down on the NIV because it's easy reading. All of them have strengths, and we just need to be aware of their weaknesses too. And some, (laughs) some versions definitely have more weaknesses than others. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. I need to go get my boys out of bed in about three minutes, so I just got in under the wire there. Look at the show notes for sure because I have a lot of links in there that talk about or show you a picture of the spectrum of Bible translations and a few that talk about the differences between Bible translations. But yeah, this is this is good stuff. We have a lot of different Bible translations, and I don't use this word very often because I don't like to overuse it, but we are blessed to have so many options available to us. So if you're thinking about switching translations, go ahead and just try one out. You know, I wish we could, can we rent Bibles from the library? I don't know. Borrow, not rent. You know what I'm saying. But yeah, like try it out. It it might be interesting that it'll probably make it harder to read the Bible at first because it's unfamiliar and unfamiliar tends to make things harder. But it is super interesting that you'll notice things that you've never noticed before when you're reading out of a different translation. And you might feel like you don't know the Bible anymore. I feel that way when I read out of the NIV. I feel like, what? I don't remember that being in there. But that's good because now I'm noticing what I'm reading. (laughs) Okay, so I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you learned something new. And I hope you go and read your Bible in whatever translation you have. All right. You guys have a good day and I'll talk to you later. Bye.